Now, last Monday, I was at a very special birthday party. My great-aunt, Aunt Julia, had just turned 100 years old, and she did get a card from the Queen. So who was all at the party? Well, to celebrate this special day, the whole family was there. Her 93-year-old sister, it's amazing, all her nephews and nieces, my uncles and aunts, and my 12-year-old nephew was there, still caked in mud from playing rugby. And it's the only time when everyone still calls me Dickie. Families, Rudyard Kipling, the famous author, he wrote this about families. He says this, All of us are we, and everyone else is they. A family shares things like dreams, hopes, possessions, memories, smiles, frowns, and gladness. A family is a clan held together with the glue of love and the cement of mutual respect. A family is sheltered from the storm, a friendly port, when the waves of life become too wild. No person is ever alone who is a member of a family. 2,000 years ago, in a city called Antioch, we see the importance of belonging to a unique family. And this family is the family of God, the church. And listen to this. You were formed to be part of God's family. So let me ask you a question. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word church? Okay, the very first thing. Well, for some people, the church is simply a building. Church is a place you go to. Or it's an organization. Or it's a club. However, here in the first century Antioch, I think there's a map coming up here, we get a true picture of the church, the family of God. John Ortberg writes this. We are created for community. We long to be with other Christ followers, to know and be known. Love and be loved. Serve and be served. Celebrate and be celebrated. Our yearning to know the purpose of our existence is satisfied as the pathway to intimacy with God and others unveils itself through the drama of the early church. So imagine this. Imagine that you're a tourist in Antioch. Now you've got your lonely planet travel guide, okay? And you've got your backpack on and your camera is ready, primed for action. And now you want to do Antioch. And so what pictures would go in your album? Well, in many ways, Antioch was a very impressive city. It was established in 300 BC by Seleucus Nicator, one of Alexander the Great's generals. And as you can see, it was situated in the north of Syria, along the Orontes River, a very prominent setting. And during the first century, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, after Rome and Alexandria. Its population, over 500,000, about the size of Edinburgh. And finally, it was a city famous for its culture. Over the years, it became known as Antioch the Beautiful because of its fine buildings. But it's also famous for its vice. And it's here, in this thriving megacity, 
that we get a true picture of the family of God. Okay, so let's go exploring. How does it begin? Well, to get the background, let's turn back to Acts chapter 8. Okay, Acts chapter 8, and Dr. Luke records what happened after Stephen was stoned. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And Luke records here, in verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And what was the result of this scattering? Well, we find out in Acts chapter 11. Okay, so Luke now resumes his narrative back in Acts chapter 11. And it's verse 19. What does it say here? Verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, watch this. Did you notice all those different locations? Okay? Are you ready for a geography lesson? Yes? Phoenicia, where was that about? Well, it was along the Mediterranean, about 40 miles north of Caesarea. And what about Cyprus? You may have been to Cyprus on your holidays. Well, Cyprus is only accessible by boat, 250 miles from Jerusalem. And Antioch, Antioch was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Okay, so what does that tell us? The church of Jesus Christ is growing fast. You see, the bad news of Stephen's death had turned into the good news for the spreading of the gospel. Now, if you look at verse 19, what do you notice? The gospel is still being told only to Jews. Do you see that? But in verse 20, what does it say? The gospel is getting out to Greeks also, to Gentiles. In God's sovereign plan, the gospel is getting out. And it's here that we discover what belonging to God's family means. Now, the truth is, in God's family, there are four levels of fellowship. And the first level is membership, choosing to belong. Now, you can be a member of many things. For example, on January the 1st, New Year's Day, what is one of the top New Year's resolutions? One of the top ones. This year, yes, this year I really must get fit. And so, what do thousands of people go and do? They join a gym. And here's how it often goes. They fill in a membership form, they hand over their bank details, and they go once a week for the first couple of weeks. And then what happens? They never go back again. Correct. Well, becoming a member of a church, you're not joining a club. You're joining a distinctive community, a family. And you'll notice, we see this in Antioch. Now you recall, after the persecution of Stephen, the church in Antioch is growing fast. So what happens next? Well, cast your eye at verse 22. Verse 22, and it says this. 
news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So imagine this. Imagine you were on this journey with Barnabas. Now what would stand out about belonging to this family? Well, there are two things. Firstly, it means belonging to a grace community. John Piper, in his book Future Grace, writes eloquently about grace. And he says this, Past grace is glorified by intense and joyful gratitude. Future grace is glorified by intense and joyful confidence. This faith is what empowers us for venturesome obedience in the cause of Christ. Now, if you were to stop, okay, and look around here tonight, what would you see? We're all different. Would you agree? So what is it that unites us? We are a grace community, united by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul writes to the church in Galatia in chapter 3. He says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And notice, it was the same in Antioch. Verse 23, what does it say? When he, that is Barnabas, arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. And catch this, it must have been obvious to everyone, to their neighbours, their colleagues, and their family. And how do we know that? Look at verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Notice, a name given first by unbelievers. Let me explain. You see, a Christian is a Christ one. And here's the point. It showed. Their lives were distinctive. And I thought about that. And I asked myself this question. Wouldn't it be great if people could say that about us? He or she is a Christ one. They are different. And why? Because of God's grace. As our vision statement says, do you remember? The vision of Charlotte Chapel is to impact our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power and message of Christ. We are a grace community. And now secondly, belonging to this family, it means belonging to a global community. Now in the summertime, during the Edinburgh Festival, what does it feel like? The whole world is here. Yes? And it's brilliant. There's a brass band from Russia, a gospel choir from Soweto, and street artists from Argentina to Amsterdam. And it must have felt a bit like this in Antioch. And we get a great picture of this in Acts chapter 13. So Acts chapter 13, two pages onwards, and notice what it says in verse 1. Acts chapter 13. It says this, In the church at Antioch, they were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod of Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, so what do we find here? Now picture this. People from all over the world, seemingly, were in this church. Where was Barnabas from? Anyone? Cyprus. And there were two from Africa. And where was Paul from? The city of Tarsus. 
international meal nights in Antioch would be amazing. And what does it remind you of? When you belong to God's people, you belong to a global community. Philip Jenkins, in his excellent book, The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity, writes this. He says this, listen to this. If we want to visualise a typical contemporary Christian, we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian favela. And you'll know what it's like when you go on holiday somewhere and you meet someone that you've never met before in all your life. There is that instant connection. Is that not true? And why? Because of our relationship together in Christ. We are one in Christ. And that's the first level of fellowship, membership. And the second level is friendship, learning to share. Now let me ask you, do you like doing calculations? What do you mean no? Yes. Well, here's a calculation for you. How much time, okay, do you estimate that you spend each week developing friendships with other Christians? Okay? Not in a big group like this, but on a relational level. For example, it could be in a small group, in a prayer triplet, playing golf together, even badly, having a meal together, and we have a church family meal on the 26th of February, and you're all invited, and so on. How much time each week? Now here's the point. You were created in God's image, and that means you were made for relationship. And it's actually good for your well-being. Believe it or not, Leonard Syme, a professor at the University of California, he did some research on the importance of relationships for our, our health. And what did he find? Well, he found that in Japan, it was the number one country in the world with respect to health. And why? Because of close social ties in that country. The things you learn at Charlotte Chapel. You see, you are made for relationships. And we see this in Antioch. And there are two lessons we can learn here. Number one, keep on meeting. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, what does it say? When he, that is Barnabas, arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. And encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Okay, so what do we learn here? Well, Barnabas developed friendships, and you can't do that without meeting together. C.S. Lewis put it very well. I like what he said. He said this, friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. thought that was great. You see, you weren't meant to go through life on your own. A story goes like this. Two men went out hunting in America. And suddenly, one yelled. The other looked up to see a grizzly bear charging towards them. And the first started to frantically put on his trainers. And his friend anxiously asked, What are you doing? Don't you know that you can't outrun a grizzly bear? And his friend said, I don't have to outrun a grizzly. I just have to outrun you. And the moral is, 
we need each other. What does Acts chapter 2 say? It's not a true story, don't worry. What does Acts chapter 2 say? Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, it's wonderful, those who are being saved. Number two, keep on encouraging. And Barnabas, he was an expert at this. Now watch this. He was some guy. His real name was actually Joseph. He had to give him the nickname of Barnabas by the apostles in Acts chapter 4. And it means son of encouragement. And he lived up to his name, William Barclay, describes Barnabas as the man with the biggest heart in the church. Now, think about this. Consider this. When he arrived in Antioch, okay, was it a perfect church? Was it a perfect church? No. You can be sure it has many weaknesses. Somebody wisely said, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. Why? Because you'll spoil it. But did you notice, he didn't focus on these. Instead, what does he do? He focuses on the evidence of God's grace in them. And he encourages them to keep living for Jesus. You know, when I thought about that, I had to ask myself once again, do I make a real effort to encourage? Yes? Or am I quick to criticize, quick to find fault? Belonging to God's family, it means to encourage. And now thirdly, the third level of fellowship is partnership, doing my part. Now last Monday, as you know, was my Aunt Julia's birthday party. Now let me ask you, what happens at birthday parties? Well, you bring birthday cards, that one's from the Queen, but she wasn't there, and you you bring birthday presents, and you eat birthday cake. And that's what happens. Members of my family displayed some amazing gifts. Some of them made their very own birthday cards. Others did some embroidery, some little Scotty dog, onto a pillow. Yes, they did. And others baked some wonderful chocolate cake. And what did I do? That's a very cruel laugh. Well, you guessed right. I sat there feeling a tad useless. Now, being a member of God's family is the complete opposite of how I felt. And why? Because everyone in this family has a part to play. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, From him... The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And we're going to learn here from the example of Barnabas. And there are two simple things to observe. And here's the first one. God gave you gifts. God gave you gifts. Now this past week, the BBC has been remembering someone with incredible gifts. A musical gift. He was born in Salzburg in Austria. He started composing when he was just five years old. And he was born 250 years ago. And his name was Mozart. Well done. Now think about this. If someone asked you this question, 
What gifts has God given you? Write down the gifts that God has given you. What would you write down? Well, in Barnabas, we're reminded that God has given you a gift. Now, remember the context. The church in Antioch was growing fast. And news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Okay? So what happens next? Well, Barnabas, he was sent to check it out. And why? Because they saw in him the right gifts. And now it's here we come to verse 25. What does it say in verse 25? Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And so God not only gave you gifts, God gave you gifts to use. And that's what Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12. Do you remember? Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. Now let me illustrate this. Last Friday, Olympic champion James Cracknell and TV star Ben Fogle came third place in the Atlantic rowing race. And it sounds exhausting. So how did they manage it? Well, in rowing all the way from the Canary Islands to Antigua, both James and Ben did what? They played their part. And that's what fellowship is. Two fellows in a ship. I thought that was great. And listen, it's the same in God's family. You see, in Greek, the word fellowship is often translated as partnership. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Holy Spirit, writes this. He says, Gifts are given to enable their recipients to minister to others. Implied in their possession is the twofold principle of dependency on Christ and service for others, since the gifts of the Spirit are given essentially to the individual for the edification of others, rather than for himself or herself. So here's a thought for this week. Ask yourself this. Do I want to experience deeper levels of fellowship? If so, look for a practical need in the church that you can meet and watch what it does for your fellowship together. And now finally, the deepest level of fellowship in the family of God is what we call kinship. Loving believers like family. Now, I'm sure you'll have heard of D.L. Moody. Well, many years ago, a shabbily dressed boy trudged several miles through the snowy streets of Chicago. You see, this young lad was determined to attend a Bible class conducted by D.L. Moody. And when he arrived, he was asked the following question. Why did you come to a Sunday school so far away? How did he answer that? Well, listen to this. He answers simply, because you love a fellow over here. Isn't that great? And you'll notice, we see that love in this church family in Antioch. Verse 27. Look at what it says. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem 
to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now as we close, there are two things to note about this love. Number one, it is a Christ-centered love. Now, if you ever go to a wedding, what is one of the great love passages often read? Anyone? 1 Corinthians 13. Yes, love is patience. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love never fails. And Christians, Christians would all say, I agree to that. But let me quote you from someone else. Mahatma Gandhi. And here's what Gandhi said. He said this. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ, as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. And that shook me. And so what can we learn from this early church? Well, picture the scene. A prophet called Agabus comes and he forecasts a famine. And so the Christians in Jerusalem would need help. So how would the Christians in Antioch respond? Well, watch this. They take up a collection and they send this money to their brother's notice in Jerusalem. And it was an act of Christ-centered love. The Apostle John writes this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And now finally, this love is a Christ-glorifying Christ love. A loving church glorifies Christ. Let me illustrate this. During, during the Second World War, Hitler commanded all religious groups to unite. And for what reason? So he could control them. And among the brethren assemblies, half complied and half refused. Now those who went along had a much easier time. But those who did not faced persecutions. There were almost every family <coughs> of those who resisted. Someone died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, feelings ran deep between these groups, as you can imagine. And finally, they decided this had to be resolved. And so leaders from each group met at a retreat. And for some days, each spent time in prayer, examining their own heart. And then they came together. Francis Schaeffer, who told off this story, asked a friend who was there, what did you do then? Now listen to this. We were just one, he replied. One in Christ. And it brought glory to Christ. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so in conclusion, tonight we have looked at what being in, a fel in fellowship with God's family means. Firstly, is membership, choosing to belong. Secondly, is friendship, learning to share. Thirdly, is partnership, doing my part. And fourthly, is kinship, loving believers 
like family. And so as we go into this week, let's remember what Jesus said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Let us pray.